0: Hi, this is Charles Wiz,
1: Tony Silva,
0: and this is episode 77 of Two Teachers Talking, where Tony and I get together and we talk about what else, teaching and teaching in Japan and teaching English and teaching in general and trying to figure out how to make the classroom a worthwhile experience for our students. And today, Tony, we're doing part two of our interview with Paul Nation, or actually my interview with Paul Nation. Um, Paul Nation is Professor Emeritus at Victoria University of Wellington, one of the more important um, researchers in applied linguistics, English as a foreign language, um, especially in vocabulary, one of the people who actually pushed forward vocabulary studies when it wasn't even considered that important. And above all, a teacher's teacher, someone who's really interested in teaching and how we can improve and become better teachers. And this is the second part, a continuation of um, the interview where I was talking with um, Paul. And we're just going to continue with that today um, and hope the listeners enjoy what we have to give them. Any comments before we go
1: into it, Tony? No, I think you pretty much covered that. I think we're ready to go. Okay,
0: so let's go. This is part two of an interview with Paul Nation. It's interesting, Paul. You used the term bias before. Yeah. And that uh, certain studies are biased and Well, we're all biased. I mean right. I,
2: in in my Vocab stuff, you know, I I'm a fanatic on the four strands after I sort of figured it out and I tend to to want to see rote learning to be a part of a course and I also want to see, you know, I believe in the monosemic bias, you know, that words don't have many meanings, words just, uh, each word has one meaning but it has many, many applications and that sort of thing And, and so whenever I approach ways of teaching and learning I sort of just come with those assumptions in my mind but, you know. The assumptions are there, and they, they shape the way I do things. Okay,
0: well, I think that's an important thing for every every person to realize: is we're biased, and we have our biases, and that kind of self awareness is really important. Um, just want to wrap it up with a kind of a tag on to the research is that there seems to be some issues about replication studies being yeah. replicated recently, um, and I think there's one going on in bilingual. With bilingual um, research, executive functions, and things along those lines, what's your t- um, feeling about the whole issue of replication and how no, studies I, I, are not being rep- or are not being able to be replicated? You know,
2: I think I think it's really important we have replication because as soon as you do a replication, you generally find something a bit different. And uh, you know, I've taught many courses on research methods, and uh, my general dictum is that if you read a piece of research and you can't find something wrong with it you haven't read it carefully enough and that's just because of the nature of, of of research using human subjects you know there's just so much variability which is possible and so you know repeating research and improving on research is really important and uh, but nowadays there's much more awareness of that to a large degree I think Graham Port who's the editor of um, language teaching has had a big role to play in this because he's written a book about it and he's made sure that in the journal language teaching there are you know there's uh, an ongoing thread of discussion of replications and the need for replications and so on
0: so the importance of replication as you mentioned is being considered but what about when the results cannot be replicated
2: yeah well that's happening i
0: think a lot more often
2: it's going to happen a lot and i think i think all you've got to do is just keep hammering away at it it's actually very it's replications are, are surprisingly unusual in 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 our field anyway and you know most people do a piece of research and then they say that's been proven so now you do something else but replication is very important because as you say often you find you don't get the same sorts of results and then you got to figure out why and then do more research on it
0: yeah you know? and, and there's not a lot of support for replicated studies i think and being published correct uh, or it's yeah, but improving I, th- I think i think
2: journal editors now are open to replications okay and and uh, it was sort of felt in the past. I don't think editors necessarily felt that that you know that, that something's already been proven, so you don't need another study. I don't. I don't think there really was that attitude. I think people just felt that they wanted to show something new. You know, mm. I think
0: replications
2: are important.
0: Okay, and so what are you working on now? Is there anything you're doing now that?
2: Yeah yeah I've been quite busy um Stuart Webb and I have a book coming out from Oxford in the next few months uh, I'm not quite sure what it's called, but it's about the learning and teaching of vocabulary so that's from oxford University press and I've just completed well i'm in the in the the last few hours of completing a book about making and using word lists and this is a bit more methodology research methodology focused but there's a lot of people creating new word lists, general service lists, and all sorts of lists. But I think that the methodology that they're using is often a bit shaky. And I'm I'm afraid that includes me as well, because I've made several word lists. And so I thought I'd get down and write a book, which sort of indicates what are the best practice that we can work out for making word lists. So I'm just finishing that. And then... The next thing I'll probably do is to look at research on young native speakers' vocabulary growth because I think there's quite a lot of research there which is a bit shaky and I want to have a good look at. Mm. I've been developing a picture vocabulary test which we've been using with young native speakers to measure their vocabulary size. And that's worked out remarkably well. I never thought that you could actually use pictures to test, you know, a whole pile of vocabulary I thought would be limited to certain nouns and so on, but in fact I found that, that I could test almost every word I wanted to test using a picture
0: a picture um, answer cue. Really? Yeah. Just I guess it's hard to find the pictures though.
2: Well now there's these big websites um which uh, make photographs available right and um and you pay a subscription fee for either a certain number or a certain amount of time and you can just download all these copyright free pictures and that, that's great and I, so to make this test I had to download all something like uh let me work it out uh, 400 about 800 pictures and uh uh But there was only, you know, out of the... Each test tests something like 96 words up to the 6,000 word level. And there was only about four or five words in each randomly selected group for each test. I made two parallel tests, which I couldn't test using pictures. One of them, for example, was the word hell, (laughs) H-E-L-L. Couldn't get any photos of that, although... (laughs) Many people would offer <laughs> suggestions <laughs> about what could be in the photograph, but in fact, you know that word turned out to be quite hard to find a picture to test because no one's actually taken a photo of it. What did you end up using? I didn't. I had to abandon.
0: <laughs> so there is abandon. at least we know there. So heaven and hell would be two words that you could not test.
2: <laughs> Probably, <laughs> but but it was actually very few words. I was quite surprised. You know, you, could, you 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 can actually test an enormous amount using pictures. So I was quite pleased with it.
0: Hmm. So, what, for example, I know that a lot of people use the fifty-four item test, your two thousand word list. I think David Begler um, and Alan Hunt worked on that. Kind of checked that, and that's your original test. Of the vocabulary levels. Test. Right, right. And no,
2: no, that, that's that's well out of date now.
0: Right. And so what would you suggest for somebody to – a teacher wants to get a quick hit, you know, sense of where their students' vocabulary levels are? What would you use? What would you well, suggest? Well,
2: they should use a vocabulary levels test, but they should use one of the more recent tests. Okay. And um, Stuart McLean and Brendan Kramer, and I think David in one of the studies – have have made a test for reading and a test for listening testing the first thousand second thousand up to about the fifth thousand i think it is and they're really good tests and they're the ones that i think teachers should be using in japan
0: with Mm. their students and how long do those take to administer
2: Uh, i'm not sure but my guess because i actually haven't used them myself Mm -hmm. um but my but I've been to papers that I've presented on it. Well, I think it probably takes less than half an hour. I'm not sure.
0: Yes, because that's, I think, a big key is being able to do that really quickly. Yes. Um, yeah. Because I sometimes have. I remember a long time ago I used um, the Paul mirrors the yes no. Do you know this word? Yeah. Do you not yeah, know this cool. word? And that was just so quick and easy. It was just unbelievably yeah. um, nice to use in a class.
2: Yeah, that works quite well, but it's sort of got a face validity problem because people sort of think you're testing vocabulary, and yet I don't have to tell you the meaning of the word. You know, mm. it's sort of, but but in fact they work very well.
0: Right, I think a lot of the follow-ups. I think in that sense there were some replications, <laughs> replicated studies, but that it yeah, seemed that, to that's work one quite area well. Where
2: there has been quite a bit of replication,
0: but it, I think it consistently works well, actually, yeah. and so that's a good yeah. thing. Okay, so again, I would just kind of taking this back, let's go back to um, a novice teacher. And yeah. somebody's just starting out. You've talked about three-sixteenths of the class being for reading. Um, what are the pitfalls that a beginning teacher should watch out for? I mean, when I talk to my students, I say the, the major pitfall is that you're going to talk the whole class.
2: <laughs> oh, I see. Well, right? that, that's, pro- that's probably a, a good pitfall to watch out for. Okay. I would sort of... I would sort of see that one of the pitfalls is being entertainment versus learning Mm -hmm. because a teacher can keep their class very happy and engaged and amused, and yet there could be not very much learning going on. Mm -hmm. And so I would sort of be looking to see, uh, make sure that, you know, that, there are, that the learners are actually engaging with the language and having a chance to learn the language. So I think that would be one of the pitfalls that, that uh, someone should look out for. Um, because a novice teacher sort of focuses on the activity and whether the activity is successful. And by successful, they generally mean were the students happy, did it keep them occupied, so and so and like that. But the real success comes from actually the learning which occurs from it. So you've sort of got to see behind the entertainment to see what what learning's occurring.
0: What about, well, I know that, I think that was definitely something I did in the beginning. And there is a difference, I think, as we progress as teachers to realize that there has to actually be learning. And if it's entertaining and students are learning, then it's great. But, yeah, that's yeah, right. but what about some quick check. what are some quick ways to measure learning? Are there any ways you'd recommend to that novice teacher? Should they just do like a quick quiz or what are some good ways that a teacher can check to see that their students are actually learning?
2: Well, one one way is to actually analyze the activities that are being used. And I mentioned the book that Stuart Webb and I have just done for Oxford. A substantial part of that is looking at very common teaching activities and analyzing them to see are there opportunities for retrieval of knowledge, are there opportunities to meet uh, words in new contexts and so on. You can actually sit down and analyze an activity to come up with some indication of whether it's likely to lead to learning or not. So that involves some analysis without actually measuring any result. Okay. And th- I think that's quite a good thing to do because once teachers realise how to do that, then they can adapt activities so that they're setting up which are conditions which are really good for learning. Mm. Uh, but then I would also then look at um, repeating activities mm. and seeing if they're done better the next time because that's a pretty clear, act- pretty clear indication of learning taking place as well
0: so maybe do a similar activity with same content and just tweak it a little bit
2: yeah and then and then if the learners are finding it now much easier to do then it's clear that learning is taking place and i guess And, and with extensive reading you could just see well are they now reading faster are they getting through their books more quickly you know what i mean and so on like that
0: yeah well i think that's one of the real attractions of teaching reading is that it's easy to really see progress yeah. Whereas I think in a speaking class sometimes it's really or a communication class as they're called here it's really hard to really track progress and see what students are doing and it's hard for the students to actually see their own progress as well. But, yeah, I
2: was I was thinking about it with that when I looked when you when I looked at the questions you sent for this interview and
0: I oh no you've one, given the secret away. <laughs>
2: I, think, I would think that one of the early. Um, Things I would do in a class would be to get them to learn the survival vocabulary of English. Uh, years ago, David Crab and I did an article on what what you need to know if you're a tourist in another country, and uh, we also so we worked out a survival vocabulary, which is things like being polite, being able to go and buy things, being able to order food in a restaurant. Um, finding getting directions and finding places that you want to see you know and so we interviewed quite a few people and did an analysis of of, the, of their experience and came up with a list of about 120 words and phrases that were really useful if you wanted just a very basic knowledge of a language and one of the early things I would do would be to make sure that the learners in my class were well in control of that because then you can do little role plays, which you know now you can do things that you didn 't couldn 't do before you know you could pretend to be tourists and you could pretend to be that and it It takes such a you know relatively small amount of learning to master this sort of knowledge, uh, but it 's so useful for actually using the language that I would put that as a fairly early thing as well
0: so what you called classroom survival language, so that would be the language the students need to in the classroom so phrases for example no, please, no, I, or no.
2: I, I, I even see it as tourists so that oh. they feel that if I now went to an English speaking country I could survive there you know with my English you know because I know how to do the things which were necessary for my survival for the first two or three weeks
0: you know and you would do that in any class regardless yeah, of
2: well I think I think it's a once again it's a fairly motivating sort of thing and I would think most learners in, in at the level at which you're teaching would probably have control of much of what's there already and there wouldn't be much extra learning to do but you could then act out the little role plays and that which would give them the confidence to feel that they could do it you know okay
0: but do you think also I always go through a whole thing with my students where I teach them what I call I guess control language just the language they 'll need in the classroom to be yeah. successful, and I think a lot of teachers I think that's a good idea a lot of teachers yeah. skip over that, so for example, yeah. you know, teaching them you know hand out download, upload um, words like that edit, revision, um, draft, but as well as things along the lines of um, "Would you excuse me, please you know to go out yeah. of the classroom so well I, I worked out
2: an activity for for practicing that, and what I used to do was to say. I'm going to read you a text and when I reach the end of the text I'm going to give it to you, I'm going to dictate it to you for you to write. So your job as students is to stop me from reaching the end of the text until you understand everything which is in the text. And it's about, you know, 80, 90 words long. So I start reading and then deliberately read too fast. And the, oh, Sorry, And I should have said before that on the board I'd write things like, excuse me, please say that again. Right. Stop. Can you repeat that sentence? What was the word in front of, you know, and mm-hmm. put, put those things up. And, the, and so you have to sort of train them into it. Mm. And then so you do this activity but you deliberately mumble at times and you deliberately speed up so that they're forced to use these things to control you. Mm. And I called the activity controlling the teacher. Mm. Uh, and, it, and I think most good language learners sort of can do this because they control the people who speak to them and say, oh, please say that one more time, you know, mm. uh, what did what did you say, you know, what was the word after such and such, and then so that they can get, you know, the language. So I think it's a good thing to do.
0: It's interesting because I do something similar. I give them their sheet with all the phrases I want them to learn, you know, what does um, this word mean, um, would you say that again i'm sorry i don't understand the question, and then I start telling them a story, and I deliberately talk really, really quickly, yeah. and all the students are standing up so that you know that they finally figure out that if they interrupt me and ask a question that they get to sit down oh yeah, but here's the interesting thing is that they don't use it in the classroom yeah they yeah. actually you know there's no transfer uh-huh so I'm wondering how do you deal with that because they learn it, I can quiz them on it, and they'll get it right basically, but they won't use it actually. It's unusual for students, I think, to actually, especially in the Japanese setting, for a student to raise their hand and say, I'm sorry, can you please speak more slowly?
2: Yeah, yeah, that's right. I guess the only way to do it is to is to have elements of the activity still existing within your normal classroom behavior, you know what I mean? Right. So that you you, you deliberately try to continue aspects of the activity. do. But I can see the problem in Japan of doing that right. because it's not felt polite to interrupt and to do those yeah.
0: things. And students are shy. And yeah. Although I think that there's some interesting th- tools that can be used with smartphones that students use to actually, yeah. they can do that anonymously. But that's been one of the biggest changes I've had in my teaching has been that I've broken my what I guess, for lack of a better word, would be lessons or activities and sp- from one class and actually started spreading them out over the semester. So oh, if I you. were going to teach something that would take, let's say, 45 minutes, I've actually started breaking that up into five-minute segments that I continue week by week by week. Mm, that's and a good idea. Yeah. yeah. And that yeah. seems to be working and helping a little bit because I realized I was doing a lot of, Doing something one time and then expecting the students that they would review on their own. And that's another thing I've discovered is that if I don't build in the review to and that's something I remember, I think, again, that stuck in my mind, Paul, from one of your classes, which was the most important thing you can teach is what you already taught.
2: That's right. The new material is the least important at any lesson.
0: And if I don't build in a review activity at the beginning and end of the class and some tool or system for the students to actually review during the week when they're away from the class, they will not review. Mm. Mm. And I'm wondering, do you have any suggestions for that or ideas to help along those lines? Because the best students review. And... A lot yeah. of times I'm not worried about my best students because I'm convinced that there are students who will learn despite the teacher, you know, that there's just yeah. some students who are really gifted learners. Um, what about that kid who's borderline? What can we do for them?
2: Yeah, well, there's a, there's an activity which I really like called the linked skills activity. And I've written this up in a chapter of a of a book called Uh, What Should Every ESL Teacher Know? That's English as a Second Language, ESL Teacher. And that book's available free from my website or from the Compass Publishing website. But in that activity, you focus on the same material three times, but using a different skill focus each time. And that means you might focus with reading and then you do speaking about the same material and then you might do listening about exactly the same material mm. and that that sort of thing has a lot going for it because it's a bit like you're spreading out of the activity and that and that is that you're you're getting repetition because you're coming back to the same material but you're also getting some novelty to it because you're coming back to it in a slight through a different skill of one of the four skills and if you spread out the linked skills activity over several days, it seems to me you'd be setting up terrific conditions for revision and for learning and so on. And the last one in the series of linked skills activities, I usually see three in a series but there's no reason why it has to be three. But you know, when you get to the last one, the learner should be performing at quite a high level, and so you're probably in the level of fluency development at that stage. Mm. But it's it's quite interesting to work out how you can change the same activity, you know, so that you that it's the same content. You have the same content, but you change the way you focus on it. And that chapter in that in the book I just mentioned goes into that in great detail and give you lots of examples. But that would be a good way of
0: building review into it. Yeah, I find that it's really helpful for my students to get the same material but come at it from a different direction with different goals and objectives, and that once they have familiarity with the content, then they're able to use that content in new and different ways, and it definitely increases their knowledge and understanding. Um, The importance of tweaking, I think, is really key, is little, little, small, little changes. I think uh, one of the problems is that a lot of students or teachers, novice teachers, spend a lot of time designing or creating activities rather than finding activities that are already made and then tweaking them and adapting them for their situation. I think it's not the best use of time, I think.
2: Yeah, you asked me about articles which, you know, students could usefully read. There's a real good article about that, written, I think, about 1950-something, 56 or that, by Earl Stevic, and it's called Technemes and the Rhythm of Class Activity.
0: Oh, I've read this, yes.
2: (laughs) Yeah, and what Stevic does is to show you can take an activity and make a small change to it, and if... If this then results in an increase in attention and motivation, then you've got another activity, you know. And it, it, I thought it was quite a smart little idea. It's like that tweaking that you mentioned, where you, you make this change and you keep the motivation up because of the change, but learning is still occurring because you're still focusing on the same material.
0: Yeah. And I think, again, students also feel comfortable with it. There's, a, I guess, that issue of how much comfort does a student need yeah. to be able actually to learn. I and this is where it kind of gets into an art almost, but that, you know, at what point is there, does there have to be enough comfort and newness because there's the comfort of, ah, I've seen this material before, I'm comfortable. And one example of this is uh, in my listening class, I use... Um, Anthony Bourdain's No Reservations, which is an American television show about a, a chef who goes and travels around the world. And I use an episode where he comes to Tokyo. And the students are already familiar with what he's talking about. So they're really able to focus on the listening. And one of the things that they've said is that it's comfortable for them because they already know the the basic content or they have the yeah. background knowledge and it really allows them to work on listening and really listening for details and understanding so comfort can be tweaked again that word in a lot of different ways but do you think that how would you find that magic line between the right amount of comfort and newness let's say or discomfort because a little bit of discomfort I find is good for myself when learning
2: yeah well it, in a way it comes down to you know density of unknown vocabulary and that sort of thing as well and the the sort of techniques you're talking about can be also called experience techniques and cuz you know there's an experience approach to reading and all sorts of things and you, you can have an experience approach to listening and so on and the the idea behind an experience approach to something is that when you design an activity you make sure that a large proportion of the activity is already within the learner's experience and the piece which isn't within their experience is where the learning is going to take place and um, the experience approach to reading which was used in New Zealand uh, very early on by Sylvia Ashton Warner uh, was like this, she used to get kids, these are probably young sort of native speakers in the class And she used to get them to draw a picture about what something that happened to them or, you know, what happened in the weekend or something like that. And then they'd come up to her with a picture and she'd say, tell me what this picture is about. And so the kid would tell the little story of the picture. And she'd write the story underneath the picture in beautiful, clear, teacherly handwriting. And then this became the kid's reading text for the day. Hmm. And so it was an experience approach because the content was already completely familiar to them. The language was already familiar to them because it's their story and they've said it. But the recognizing the written form of the letters and the words was the new part of the activity. And this is where the learning was going to take place. And so instead of having reading books written by other people, these kids were actually making their own reading books because they just stapled together their pictures each time and uh... it was a very successful way of teaching reading because a large amount of the knowledge needed to do the activity was already within their experience and so it's quite, and most fluency activities are experience activities where just about everything you do is within your experience and therefore
0: you can get fluent at doing it i think the definition of fluency activity would be that it uses or already known its knowledge that the the learner already possesses yeah, and, and language. And, right, yeah. and you're not adding anything new to that. That's so, right. So maybe yeah. I think one of the things is to say to a novice teacher, a beginning teacher, is when you're designing an activity or working an activity, make sure that there's one skill or one aspect of learning that you want is that set as your objective, and then make sure everything else is reasonably easy or within the learner's awareness and knowledge so that it's possible for them to learn that one skill. Otherwise, you get a, mism- a mix Mixing up with yeah. a lot of different things. Okay.
2: Yeah, I think, I think one of the skills that a novice teacher needs to pick up is how to spend time focusing on the same material without having to move on to a new technique or activity. Mm-hmm. And I think, you know, you've mentioned that before and today. and It's a sort of idea of not rushing on to something new but spending time on, you know, Rousseau put it, Uh, year, what, 1700s, you know, the main aim in education is not how to gain time but to lose it. And, you know, how can you just keep focusing on the same stuff and going over it and coming at it in different ways so that it truly becomes known and not having to rush off onto something new. And novice teachers tend to bring in something new because then that will raise motivation and interest. But by doing the tweaking that you suggest, you stay on the same content and the same language to learn but then the in, the motivation comes from the tweaking and the slight changes that you make right. so it's really quite an important skill
0: and but that also has to be tied in i think with the learner getting feedback so they actually see that they're learning because yeah. otherwise it's going to become an it's like oh not this again and yeah. okay um what would you do you let's say you, someone comes to you in this situation and says, Paul, I ha- it's April, I'm going to be teaching the f- my first class of the year, the starting off in Japan. Um, how would you start off your first day of class in a Japanese university, let's say with um, intermediate level students? What would you do on that first day?
2: Uh, well, I'd actually get straight into teaching. I think that You know, often when teachers meet up with a new class, they do things like introductions and all of this sort of stuff. And I think, in a way, that's throwing away opportunities because students come to a class initially full of motivation and interest. And I think the first thing you've got to do in a a class is show that you're going to deliver the goods and there's something really useful to be gained from this class. And so I think you've got to establish your credibility quite early on. And so, um, I'd be I'd be getting you know so I'd be actually going going straight into straight into learning straight away rather than getting to know the students. So I'd leave getting the know to know the students for a slightly later class. Um, I'd if it was the very first class of the year, I'd be into the survival vocabulary stuff. So I'd want them to feel that by the time they came to the end of the class, they could actually you know do those survival things that we were just talking about before. I'd also try and motivate them to some way by saying, well, you know, the goals that we're trying to reach are these and here's how we're going to do it. So I'd keep them informed because an informed learner is better than a blind learner. That's the sort of distinction. One of the great trainers of uh, middle distance runners in New Zealand years ago used to explain to his runners his athletes, why they were running up hills or why they were carrying weights on their back when they did this. And they say, look, if you do this, then this will strengthen X, Y, and Z. He said, you could get twice as much work out of them if they understood why they were doing each thing. And so that sort of motivation and informing would be, be mm-hmm. pretty good. And I'd be getting my reading program going, my extensive reading program. So I'd be getting that started in the year and getting them uh, fired up about that and showing them how to do it. And then I'd probably give them a a test uh the vocabulary vocabulary levels test of some form so that i could find where they are and they could see where they are and uh, worked out where they might go in the next uh parts of the course
0: Hmm. okay the thing about the blind learner that you mentioned with this distance runner, the middle distance coach. It's. I think that's maybe one of the biggest pitfalls I know of novice teachers is that they don't explain what the activity will do or what the lesson will achieve. And I know that when students know that, it really does make a difference for them.
2: Well, I think teachers also have, if you ask teachers to say, well, what do you expect them to learn from this activity? Sometimes teachers are often a little bit stumped by that one too. And they're not. they're not quite sure what the answer should be. And so I think this goes back to the technique analysis I mentioned before that it's quite good to develop the skill of looking at the activities that you use quite often and analyzing them and saying well why why are we doing these what are their learning goals and what are the conditions in the activity which lead to these learning goals and so on and it's quite it's, it's easy enough to do this and uh, but it's, it, I think it's a very useful skill because then it gives a purpose to the activity.
0: Right, and I think what that does, though, it kind of causes people to have to shift in their thinking because you have to work backwards from the goal and yeah. then figure out how you're going to know that learning took place. And I think this is um, a guy named Bruce Wiggins and Ty McKee. They did a book called Understanding by Design, uh-huh. and where he he flips everything backwards and says, which didn't surprise me that you start with the goals. But the interesting idea is that after you've established what are the really important learning goals for the course, is that you start working on your assessment instruments. How will you know that learning took place? And he says, that will guide you in which activities and how you should structure the course. And I thought that was a very interesting way of looking at setting up a class and it actually forces one to look for what are the learning outcomes you desire and what will happen and being able to measure the activities yeah I, I
2: would yeah I'd sort of add to that that you know assessment gives you one kind of feedback and observation gives you another kind of feedback you know that if you can see words being used which are the target words of the activity, and they 're being used in ways which are slightly original. you know this is also a good a good way of getting feedback mm. and If you can see that the learners are engaged with the activity you know so so that that 's another sort of viewpoint on it too
0: what 's the advantage of having students in pairs and groups in an activity where the teacher isn 't talking is it gives you much more observation time yeah, that's and I think right. a lot of people really forget that that you actually have to sit back and. Watch the thing I think also that's really key, and i 've again this comes from working with my students at my university is that when they go out to do observation to really teach them how to see or how to observe, because a lot of times and I get this a lot from students they'll say the students are motivated, the students are engaged and i I call that you know, declaring an internal state is that they really don't know what's going on inside the student's mind and teaching them to observe, for example, that, for example, the student has used the target vocabulary or the student is using the phrases or the students are taking notes. In other words, it has to be observable behaviors because otherwise you're interpreting, I think, and that has an effect on how well you can actually see what's going on in the classroom. Yeah, yeah, No, I think that's right yeah yeah so that's part of it um other question this comes from uh something Tony and I talked about in a previous podcast Tony's going to be teaching a completely a class he's never taught and it's working with students who have not been successful at all in learning English he doesn't know what level they're at he doesn't know how much they've learned all he knows and he's been told is that this will be a low level listening and reading class so what do you do in that situation are there any you know suggestions you have that should be reasonably safe and that will you know, lead to some success? Somebody gives you, you know, kind of lacking information and this kind of blank slate, but it's not really clear. What would you do?
2: Well, you've got to, you're you're probably, seeing he hasn't taught the class yet, you're probably going to have to work out something that's going to be reasonably successful on the first day. So choose some kind of activity to do that. Um, I'm just trying to think what I would what sort of activity i would choose there
0: um yeah we hmm. had we had fun with this one <laughs> we really yeah. had fun because there's yeah, not I'm enough just, information you're really flying blind on this no
2: no I'd, I'd i'd probably include some kind of dictation activity in that but i might i might have to prepare you know uh, i i think i'd prepare a fairly low level a very very simple dictation take Take something from a low-level graded reader, for example, because you can get a lot of feedback from dictation. But you can also give dictation by presenting each phrase twice. But the first time, you say it um, reasonably quickly, and then the second time you say it, you say it slowly, and then the learners write and the learner the learners who are good can write after the first saying of the phrase and the learners who need more repetition wait for the second saying of the phrase which will be slower and then you can just judge what goes on there uh, another activity which is a little bit like dictation would be what i call the listening to stories activity where you read a story to the learners but you repeat each phrase twice uh, and you just make sure that they're keeping up and if they are keeping up then you speak a little bit faster and so on like that. Um, and then uh, then the next thing I'd be doing would be to try and get some feedback from them. So I'd be getting some kind of test as I said, you know, like a levels test or something like that so I could get by the end of the class I'd have a better indication of where they were at and what we could be doing. Um, I'm just trying to think of a uh, yet another activity. I suppose an information transfer activity would be quite good too because you can do one an activity which works with many levels of the the class. Actually, I I know a good activity. There's a blackboard reproduction exercise where you write up a a paragraph on the board and then go round the class getting the students to read it, read it aloud. And after each reading, you rub out a few words from the passage which is written on the board. And so by the end of the activity, the learners are actually looking at the board, but there's nothing there, and Mm. uh, reading from memory what was written there. And that can work well with a class of, you know, very wide range of proficiency
0: levels. And if you have students, let's say, who are not so confident, you can put them in groups and they're working on it as a group, collaborating together and trying to recreate the story. So there's not a lot of pressure on individuals at that point as well.
2: Yeah, that, that's the, um, uh, what is it? Uh, Ru- Ru- Ruth uh, Wainrib,
0: dictogloss, isn't it? I what think so, right. It? Dictogloss. yeah. Yeah. Yeah, okay, so the other question I have, and this is off from where we've been talking about, um, and this is kind of looking at the future, um, a lot of advances in artificial intelligence recently, um, a lot of it is in the news, there's um, translation software seems to be improving. What's your take on, on the future of language learning? If for example, in fifteen years, you people will be able to have real-time translation. And the reason I'm asking is I've been thinking about this a lot, uh, as you know, how this will impact language teaching. And my belief is that as language um, as translation software improves, that there's going to be a shift from actually linguistic compet- competency to communicative competency that there would be more it'll be more important to learn what register to use or what's the context and how to understand the context rather than specifically the linguistic competency. What's your take on that? Do you think I'm off base on that or I've, I've never really thought about it, but I I
2: remember an experience when I was living in Japan of going in to get my computer repaired and the computer repair guy didn't speak English or either was too embarrassed to speak English and he was using I think it was, it was a Google Translate on his cell phone so that you know he'd type in a question in Japanese and then show me the translation in English and so on and we were doing this sort of thing backwards and forwards uh, and we were actually communicating quite successfully by it and I think once the translation things get much better then probably the demand for people knowing another language becomes a bit less. And that that would be sort of an interesting effect, I guess. Uh, I think it probably won't really take away people's desire to learn another language because people who want to learn another language really do want to be able to use it. So it's probably not not in strong competition with that. But I would guess that that might be, you know... You might have a, a slightly reduced audience for language classes, but uh, beyond that, I don't really have any great thoughts on it. I have a feeling that there's not going to be any magic answer to learning a language. I think, you know, learning a language comes down to basic psychological processes, and artificial intelligence stuff is not going to change those processes or replace them, I would think.
0: Yeah, I just think that. It's something that should be talked about as to, because there are, there are people who, right. Well,
2: I remember that Bill Gates thought that the internet was going to be a waste of time. Right, right, right. And I think he also (laughs) said, why would anybody (laughs)
0: need more than I think, what did he say? Why would anybody need more than 20 megabyte hard drives?
2: Or something like, I don't yeah, know, if uh, you sort of think, well, these are really informed people at the front, and so we all make errors. And so uh, guessing is going to be a real guess, I would
0: guess. Well, I think the stupidest thing I ever did was I met, met someone in about 1982 or 83, and I said, what do you do? And he says, oh, I work on computer graphics. And I said, well, what's the use of that? <laughs> I think I was like, well, <laughs> that was like nothing. I should not even be repeating that. But I'm wondering because so many people in Japan for most students in Japan learning English is a requirement Um, and it's something that perhaps will come in and be useful for them in the future but if for example within there must be within a certain point in time that translation software will become pretty good I think as you pointed out it's not perfect but I can actually you know do the same thing I can have a question and I can type something in or actually say it and get it translated and it's within a certain you know parameter that's useful for solving certain kinds of problems that at some point it might get actually good enough but I think that it's questionable whether the AI will know how to adjust for the circumstances, right? Context is always really important and nuanced. So that's why I was talking about the communicative competence.
2: Yeah. Yeah, it sort of comes back to maybe, maybe it would be good if it made languages not compulsory. Because I'm, I'm sort of, I feel that as soon as you make some subject compulsory, you end up with a substantial number of people in your class who really don't want to be there and who really shouldn't be there. And uh, and maybe so if there if there are alternatives to actually you learning language and that would be, you know, good translation softwares available and things like that, then it might end up that we have people in our classes who are, we don't have problems with getting them to engage with learning well and that because they really do want to be there. Mm. I remember at our university we had an r- undergraduate writing course and uh the the writing course was uh, optional you know you just you just enrolled for it if you wanted to do it and it was immensely popular and very successful and then the faculty then decided that they were going to because it was such a, uh, a well regarded course and people were almost killing to get onto the course uh that they would make it compulsory for the whole faculty so they had a vote at the faculty meeting and the only people who voted against it was our department who actually taught the course. And then they looked around and they saw that the people who are teaching the course who stood to gain by extra enrollments and that were actually voting against it. So they scrapped the whole idea. (laughs) But our our thinking was that as soon as you made it compulsory, then you have, you know, say 10%, 25%, 50% of the learners in your class who don't want to be there. And boy, no teacher wants that.
0: But that's the reality for most teachers
2: yeah yeah so, and so but in a way that then you know the the uh if if this technology means that then people who don't want to learn a language still have a way of dealing with other languages, then that might make the teacher's job a bit better
0: yeah yeah, I think it's always nice if you can have people who self select because they're yeah. motivated and interested um what about here's a question i have um i Teach a um, what's called a presentation skills class. And I teach it, and the students never actually come up in front of the class. It's a class of, let's say, about 25 students. And I think most other teachers have the students presenting, doing presentations to the entire class. And I kind of shelved that. And have my students doing presentations maybe to groups of, you know, that contain five or six students. And one of the advantages, of course, is they get a lot more opportunities to give their presentations. But my take on this is, and I'm just wondering how you feel about this, is that most people, I think, will never give a presentation or a speech to 20 or 25 people. I think that's an example of something that comes about from being a teacher, where we think that this is normal to speak to groups of 20 or 25 people. And I'm wondering if you think that's a useful skill to teach students, to give them experience to speak using their you know, English when it's not their native language to a group of 25 or 30 students, or is it better to teach them how to explain things in smaller groups?
2: Well, I, I quite like your way of doing it in groups. The idea of being able to make the same presentation several times is a really great idea because it's better than a one-off, highly stressful situation. You've got a, a situation where you can actually improve over three or four deliveries of the same material to different uh, groups seems to me a far superior in terms of the conditions for learning. You know, because you've got mm. repetition, you've got the chance for a language-focused improvement between the repetitions. Um, you've probably got increasing motivation through success and so on. So there's, I think there's lots of things in in favor of it, doing it in the, the group way. Also, you can re- view it as a, a, an experience task as well. Uh, because one way of preparing for a preparation presentation is to sort of, you know, do your background reading and your your planning and things like that. So it means that when you do the activity, you can do the activity at quite a high level of performance because of all the preparation which has gone on before. So it's an, in reality, you're turning it into an experience task through, through preparation. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, uh, and so I, I, I like the idea of doing it in small groups. The fact that it's, it's a presentation which is not, you know, it's a monologue. And so you'd say, well, when do you, when do you give monologues? And so in the situation we're in now, we're giving monologues to a large <laughs> degree. And, and there are speaking situations where you do hold the floor and give a monologue. So you could probably justify it from that viewpoint.
0: Yeah, I just don't see the benefit for putting a student in front of 25 or 30 students. So, for example, even with my Japanese, I don't mind talking to one person, and I don't mind talking to two or three people. But if if, if I have to speak in front of 20 people,
1: Mm.
0: and I have a reasonable level of self-confidence, I don't enjoy it either. But that's a big difference in how I teach the class. But the other thing I do on top of this is that every presentation that is the graded presentation they do or three midterm presentations, including a final presentation, not only do they do it in groups and they get to do it three times, I have them do it again the following week. Mm, So they get to take the feedback. And part of it is to get my students to understand that this so-called test is a learning opportunity. They get feedback from the students. They see what the the other students have graded them. Because I also don't listen to the students. They... They have a, um, a sheet, a rubric sheet that they use to grade each other and give each other feedback and giving them a chance to have a week to revise and prepare again and respond to the feedback because there are questions that come up. Students are also required to ask questions to the speaker. I find it's really, it's a useful activity. Hmm. Um, and. <laughs> You know, I have to justify losing, or supposedly losing, three days of teaching, but I find that the rewards are just, you know, far outweigh any losses.
2: Well, there's a technique called issue logs that some of my colleagues have worked on. And the issue logs is at the beginning of a semester, each learner chooses a particular issue or topic that they're interested in. And they they spend the rest of the semester researching it, Reporting on the the findings of the research to their small group, eventually writing a report on it, and eventually delivering a talk on it.
0: Hmm. Oh, yeah. And this is, uh, I'm sorry, I kind of do that with their group presentations.
2: Yeah, and that's where I'd see what you're doing—the same sort of thing—in in that you're focusing on this, they're uh, focusing on the same material through a variety of different skills, and increasing their fluency and control of it so it becomes truly becomes an experienced task by the time they get towards the end of the semester you know so i think it's you know there's a lot going for that
0: yeah yeah what's well, always this is this discussion that occurs between the teachers you know when you're getting together at lunchtime but it's the idea uh, with the presentation class that i find difficult to understand is my guess that most of my students will never give a speech Mm. to 25 people, but they will work in teams. They will work in groups so that this is a lot more real world. So, but this is again, the advantage of being a teacher, I think is that we have a lot of autonomy in the classroom to do what we want and to revise things. And
2: you could also deal with the issue, the presentation issue, you know, but the usefulness of presentations by the topics that they chose. And if those topics were things that they would speak in an extended way to other people about even in a conversation then you know that would be a good justification for doing the monologue type of activity Yeah, yeah. like you know like say me as a visitor to J- to Japan if I could talk about New Zealand you know say for three or four minutes or something like that or four or five minutes then that would be one way of me playing my role in the conversation and doing something which the others want to hear you know and in a way it's a kind of presentation and uh and i'm sure you could get things you know like people's hobbies or that sort of stuff where they could talk to others about it and others are happy enough to listen as a kind of mini presentation
0: yeah well i was talking with my daughter about some presentation topics and she's 14 so she's an eighth grade middle school student And the thing that she said is, why don't you just let people talk about what they want to talk about? (laughs) She says, you're always worried about motivation and students being motivated. And she says, you know, why don't you ask, give the prompt the question of what are you passionate about? And explain to people what you're passionate about. And I thought, it's a great idea. Again, giving the students the opportunity to talk about something that they have experience with, the knowledge. So it's removing a lot of the load for them. You know, after all these years of the research and the teaching and the fact, I think, Paul, that all your research always is very much, I think, classroom-driven, I think practically driven. Um, And I think that's one of the interesting things about your research is that I know that whatever I've read anything from you or talked with you, um it's always been there's always been something I could take to the classroom Mm -hmm. and I remember when we were working together when I was doing the PhD I remember I think the first day in your office when you you said to me that if by the end of my PhD which I didn't finish (laughs) the uh, (laughs) um I think you said that if there aren't Five or six easy tweaks. And this is, I think, where tweak actually got into my vocabulary so deeply. You said, if there aren't five or six things that a teacher can take out from your dissertation and apply to the classroom, then it's really not a good use of your time. Mm -hmm. And that that commitment to research being practical and being applicable in the classroom was something that really stuck with me. Um, Do you... What then does somebody who's been teaching for 25, 28 years or something, actually, I think, wait, 31 years now, um, what can I do to up my game, so to speak? <laughs> <laughs> you know, because that's how I feel. I feel like the mm. more I teach, the less I know. And I yeah. feel like, you know, what, I, you know, I, and I'm getting close to the end of the teaching career. <laughs> mm. And I'd really like to, you know, what can I do to really up my game? Well, I come back to that book I mentioned at the beginning. (laughs) I'm
2: I'm not trying to plug it for money or anything like that, but it just was a book which satisfied me quite a lot. I think shameless (laughs)
0: self-promotion is the phrase, isn't it?
2: Yeah, yeah, but, you know, what should every EFL teacher know? Because I'd actually read several books where people had tried to answer that question, and I looked at them and I thought, boy, they're not really answering the question. And then I thought, what if someone came to me and and asked me the question you ask me now and say, look, you've been working in this field for so many years now and here's someone new who hasn't done it before, what would you tell them? And I thought, yeah, well, you know, off the top of my head, I'd still have to sit down and think about it. So I thought, well, okay, well, I'll write the book. And so that's what I did. So my recommendation would be read the book and see what differs from what your experience and knowledge is and then evaluate that and say, is what differs a weakness in the book or something that you need to then take on for yourself, you know? And then what's in your knowledge and experience which isn't in the book and then how do you evaluate that, you know? Mm. And I think that would be quite a good way because then it's quite good to go and observe other people's classes and to see what to do. And in a way, a book is some attempt to try and you know, let other people see what someone thinks should be the basis of what they're doing.
0: Well, it's interesting what you just mentioned about observing other classes because I was working at a coordinated program as a part-timer and I had to be observed. That was part of their program. And I remember turning to the director and saying, you know, I don't want to really be observed. I want to observe. I want to watch and see what other people are doing. That's what's going to be really helpful for me. You know, you're giving me feedback is, I promise you that if I know I'm being observed, I will teach the class properly. Yeah. But I want to be able to go out and observe, so I think that's something I would really love to see in programs: is that there's some kind of release time so that I can go out and see what other people do. Because I'm always amazed how much I learn when I just talk to people and find out what they're doing and how they do things so differently from me. And So I know that upping my game involves watching other people and then talking to other people. Yeah, I
2: think that's right, too. And, And I think it's worthwhile thinking of that as a kind of, you know, systematically, like, you know teachers should be getting together in teachers' groups sort of semi-informally to, to see what others are doing and to share material and ideas, and then they should be observing, and then they should be reading, you know. So how do you continue your education as a teacher once you finish your training courses and so on? Yeah. And I think there's, there's lots of easily manageable ways which are very, very helpful.
0: Hmm. I know that my daughter goes to international school in Kobe, Canadian Academy, and it's built into the system. Every Wednesday, the teachers get together and they meet and they talk. Hmm. And there's um, the community of learners. They read together, they look at research, they talk about what they're doing. And that's, I think, one of the reasons why she's getting such a really excellent quality of education there. Yeah. You know, really, really happy. I know that the thing I think happens in Japan is that we really are isolated. I don't know about other situations. But if, yeah. I, if I don't, for example, go into the lunchroom where I know, or the room where I know the part timers are hanging out, I will have almost no contact with another yeah. teacher and know what's going on except for some, maybe some emails and announcements. So mm-hmm. yes, I have, yeah. by the way, I have downloaded your book. Oh, good. I <laughs> just okay. want you to know. Okay. 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 then. That's good. Well, thanks. I appreciate it. Paul, you gave a lot of time to us. I appreciate no, you're it. welcome. And it's been a pleasure. I haven't spoken with you in a long time. No. And no. Um, I appreciate your time. And... uh The best of luck with everything that you're doing okay
2: yeah well there's a vocab at tokyo conference on this year okay and i'll be i'll be heading off to that i think and that looks as if it's going to be pretty good and when is that oh about september i think okay but you just look at vocab at you know like the at sign tokyo and you'll you'll get a website for it okay
0: all right well thank you very much paul and in
2: regards to the family and regards
0: to your family too and be well okay. Okay, thanks. 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 See you be well. Bye-bye. Okay, well thanks again to Paul Nation for giving up his time to talk with me and um help us on the podcast and so Tony, comments, um responses, reactions. What do you think? Um it was kind of an interesting talk. Not kind of actually, it was a very interesting talk. Paul's always got interesting ideas and incredibly knowledgeable about the field.
1: Well, it was um it what came through very strongly for me was his experience and his expertise in in research. And one of the topics that's really popular um, in in many fields these days is uh, replication of research and how important that is, especially when you're talking about human subjects, right? Mm. Uh, Because there's so much (laughs) research that's been done that people have been relying on and they're figuring out, it's like, well, Maybe this isn't the way it works after all, and uh, you know, being able to you know repeat uh, the results is um, pretty important. And it was it was it was nice to hear him talk about you know applying that to um, to foreign language acquisition research. That was that was interesting. That was good. Mm.
0: Yeah, it's an important thing. I think um, there's just in almost every field now a whole discussion about the problems of that studies are being replicated and people are not getting the same results, and they can't get the same results. And a lot of times that's become basically the canon for how yeah. to teach or how yeah. we understand the world or how we understand learning. So I'm looking forward to a lot more support for replication studies.
1: Yeah, yeah, that would be... Because as, as it is, like, well, that's already been done. Why do you want to do it again? It's like, well, Because it hasn't been because. done twice. It hasn't been done twice. <laughs> the question answers itself. Right. That's a really the, good point. yeah. And one of the other things that hit me, um, and which it's it's one it's it's two things maybe that was kind of curious and interesting or mm, it raised a question. Uh, his comment about what to do on the first day of class is to go right. And he said right, go right into learning. Right, he didn't say go into teaching. He was right into learning, uh, kind of without an intro and stuff. And that was like okay, I, I can kind of get that, but then it was combined with um the a uh, comment about the what i guess was perceived as a problem between entertainment and learning mm. and certainly that's um that's a valid point right because there's they're not the same thing but the two things together um kind of yeah it just made me think a little bit cuz it's 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 like well okay this is a little bit different than the way I pre- approach things, I think. So I, it was—it just kind of like you know woke me up a bit when I heard those two things together. Yeah, it was an interesting
0: comment. I hmm. I see maybe a little bit differently from you because I just got done observing some students in their first they in their teacher training where they actually teach their first class, and of course, what do they do? Their main criteria is the students enjoyed the lesson. So I think part of it might be coming from that novice teachers, beginning teachers, I think place a premium on enjoyment, the pleasure of the lesson, how motivated are the students to continue rather than the actual life criteria sure. of, you know, sure. did they learn anything, which I think is... The, do
1: they enjoy it, and do they, do they like me?
0: Exactly, right? <laughs> <laughs> which we don't care about anymore once you get into this field for a while.
1: I still care. I don't want them to hate me. You don't
0: want them to hate you, but you're not... That is not the dominant, let's say, operating but I want them to, of,
1: I want to like me for, this, for the right reasons. Because right? you're teaching them, and they're learning. Right, because they they're, learn... They come to class, and they learn stuff, and that's why they like me. They don't like me because it's a fun, easy class, right? right. And, and it might be, but... Yeah. I don't want him to like me for that reason. Yeah. But I think the
0: other thing, going back with what Paul said, you know, is one of the things I realized while talking to him, and I may have mentioned this before in the first half of the interview, is Paul was talking about classes that meet basically every
1: day. And that was the other thing that I thought about. It's like it, there is that, but also um, Japan. Right. And that's, I think, a biggie, <clears throat> too. Do you want to elaborate on that just a little bit? Um, my perception is, and from what you know, from people that I've talked about, uh, talked with who've s- taught English in other countries, that um, generally, you a lot more sugar coating is, for whatever reason, is is needed in Japan. Um, it goes back to what we talked about when we, we did on our first days, mm. and one of the examples is that is like the importance of smiling. And yeah, I know by the end of my first week, my cheeks hurt because I'm smile, forcing this smile so much. But inevitably, when I you know discuss with students about you know what's a, what's a good speaker or what's a, what's a good teacher, smiling always comes up. And um, I don't know. I think that there's a sense somehow, and I haven't thought this all the way through, but I think that that entertainment factor is uh, maybe more important. In Japan, you almost need to, again, sugarcoat um, the lesson and sneak the learning in because maybe because maybe exactly because they've been subjected to so much drudgery, especially with English language learning in junior high school and high school, right? Right, Mm. and also it might be the structure and how they approach college.
0: There still is the idea in Japan that university is a break. Mm -hmm. That too. And I think that's very different from how we envision the university system, at least our age group, our, our demographic when we went to college, that it was a learning period. It wasn't a goof-off. You, go
1: you go there in order to learn. That so have, that you're prepared, that you right? There, yeah.
0: And in Japan, the, it's it's really a network. It's four years of networking. And the I, I, even with a lot of my students, I see that their priority is their, their circles, their social clubs, their activities of um being responsible to other people so right so i think that's part of what paul was saying but i did like the idea of just going in and teaching right from the beginning you know and that sets a tone and maybe it's a good way to go
1: you know it's not testing
0: them it's like okay let's open the textbook and let's get started let's start moving instead of the usual way of building a dynamic because i think in a certain not in a certain way and definitely that's building the dynamic that we're here for business Mm-hmm. so i kind mm-hmm. of i'm thinking i might try that out with some new classes in october and see what happens you know does it really just say okay let's get to work see what happens right
1: hmm. yeah so one way to find out right yeah i mean how much do i have to lose
0: i don't think no. it's it's not like a years a year <laughs> a year's worth of teaching with that class <laughs> i said i'm gonna start it in october Oh, yeah, I've learned that yeah. lesson. By the way, do not <laughs> do not experiment with year long classes at the beginning. That, yeah, I've one made... mis-
1: one misstep, you pay for it oh, all year long. Oh,
0: oh dear, dear, dear. That's a whole topic in itself. That's a whole podcast, mm-hmm. right? Okay, mm-hmm. but I thought, yeah, that there's that a a sense of just get in and get working. I mean, I remember that he said that the major in. Um, his book about whatever EFL or whatever ESL teacher needs to do is the whole, the major responsibility of the teacher's planning and that you get in and let's just, you know, let's get to it, make sure they learn and that they'll be responsive to learning. And I think, again, as we've pointed out, there might be a slightly different, uh, you know, attitude in our classes. So I'm not sure exactly how to balance that out. But then he talked about in the first talk, remember, about the extensive reading and how the yes. students really enjoyed the extensive reading; they just didn't yes. want to do it outside of the classroom. <laughs> so, okay. Any other? What else did you think?
1: Yeah, the other, the other big one was uh, when, when you guys were talking about um, artificial intelligence, uh, computer translation, in, as it relates to you know foreign language education, and I was pretty surprised when he with his answers, is I know he never thought about it, and I was like, wow, um, because his uh, because vocabulary is such a a big part of his shtick right yeah and it would it seemed to me and i guess this was my question for you to ask him so i was kind of sad that it fell flat oh come on make me look fat bad okay thanks <laughs> make me look bad no as i said it was my question this is i take responsibility for it falling flat because it was a it was the wrong question right because he, he never thought about the question it's like well and i thought that you know especially vocabulary acquisition. You know, he taught his, one of his, you know, thing with the four strands and deliberate learning Mm -hmm. versus, and that, well, that's, this is a perfect match. I mean, you've got, you know, modern algorithms that can tailor vocabulary lessons and recycling and uh, things. I am, this is, looks to me like a perfect match and um I was yeah I was just I thought he was surprised. supportive
0: of that but not not sure about the role of machine translation and the teach general language teaching-huh
1: uh-huh, okay let me and then yeah, I always thought you yeah well your with your comment I always thought it was also very interesting about the uh how the computer translation itself might uh cause a possible shift toward Communicative competency, rather than pure linguistic. You mean skills. at the
0: initially in the beginning, right? That right. you would teach that. Yeah, actually, I'm amazed at that. I have not yet. I mean, I haven't talked to everybody in the field, but when I talk to people, it's almost no one has thought about that. Everyone I've spoken with, and especially the people who are like doing their masters at our school, in um, you know applied linguistics or in um, English as a second language or Tesol. They're they're just like, oh, no, it can't happen. It can't occur. Yeah,
1: Trump will never be nominated. <laughs> and there we go, ladies and gentlemen, a quick segue <laughs> into the
0: current political situation in the United States, and you can have no idea where Tony and I lie on the political spectrum on this one.
1: Well, whether, even wherever you lie, it doesn't mean the likelihood of that happening. No, that's a great right? comment, like people, is wherever just you just lie. Just ignore it, you know, just ignore it. It's like whistling in the graveyard. It's like, well, you know you're if you're a language teacher and you're not thinking about computer translation what are you what are you doing <laughs> where are you well um I, it's an interesting
0: thing so i know that there are people who are working on it there's a whole lot of research that's going on but as far as the everyday teacher you know how does it really impact our students learn so there's a question um in my listening and reading class. I have my students use vocabulary profiles, um, which um, Paul Nation its a, a piece of software or an app he wrote with, uh, forget the name of the person he wrote it with, but what it does is it will break down any article, any input into the K1, K2, K3, K4, or there's different mm-hmm. variations of this. But what it can do is it can show you where what the reading difficulty is. And how many words from each level are there? Now, how is that different from using having my students use machine translation to read a difficult article? So, it's a good question. I think there are tools out there. Mm-hmm. You know, would you should you not use the tools? What's the point of teaching people who might not really actually use English all that much? And again, that kind of I think ties back into. The humanities question: What is the value of the humanities? Um, you know, it, and the well, and is also a, like, the, for
1: example, take it out of English, right? Like learning long, why why learn long division when you've got a calculator? Exactly. Is there is there value in knowing what's going on under the hood? Exactly.
0: Other than for brain training. And trying to keep, you know, <laughs> your senility at bay for a while. <laughs> but these are questions I think that are going to come up and we should, we, we're going to address sometime in the future. But yeah, the idea of it's not being addressed directly or it's not in the mainstream because given Moore's law, and everything that's going on. I, I mean, how many years away are we from reasonably accurate machine translation? I don't know. And what happens to the field? So that was kind of interesting. Also, anything else you thought that kind of stuck out for you?
1: You know, two, a couple of small things. You guys were you you talked a little bit about presentations and um, your your approach to doing it to small groups, which again, I'm I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to thank you for because um, I've in, adapted that and use it every year now with. Um, a number of my classes, talking you know, to talk groups of four students rather than um, one student in front of the classroom, one at a time to the other forty students. Right. You know, which, like with you, it's just had such an awful waste of time. Mm. So that I liked, and uh, again, thank you for that. You're welcome. And then, uh, yeah, I, I also. It's nice to I be. Did. It's nice
0: to be right for <laughs> once. <laughs>
1: <laughs> and um, I also appreciated his. Um, his emphasis on prioritizing practical application of research. Because mm. um, it's very easy to, yeah, don't too easy to go off, and, you know, it's like research something. I mean, it doesn't have any practical application. Then what's it for, right? I mean, it's just, you know, cranking out stuff to put on your CV.
0: Well, the pure research has value. It's... It's not applicable immediately, but it does have value. But what I've always liked about Paul is that focus on teaching and learning and the practicality of what you're doing. And more than anyone else I've known in the field, just really focused on that. He's a real teacher, Mm -hmm. and he sees this as everything being geared towards the classroom and helping people learn. And I like that a lot with Paul. I really like it. And that's one of the reasons why I enjoyed you know working with them for a little while, so
1: yeah, so that kind of struck a chord with me too well,
0: we're both I think interested in what happens in the classroom, yeah that's compared to some other people who are just doing pure research, looking at things that immediately or initially do not have direct application to the classroom mm. and what what Paul does is that you can take whatever. He's done, and you can actually immediately use it, and it's useful. The other thing, by the way, is, I don't know, have you read too much of his stuff? Not much. But I love giving his stuff to my students because my students always say, this man is so clear and easy to read. Mm. His writing is really clear and easy to read, even though he's dealing with difficult concepts. And I think mm-hmm. that is something that I really admire, that ability to clearly explain complex and difficult ideas clearly, so that...
1: That's a a real skill. Yeah. That's, That's not easy to do. And he's really good at that. He's really, really good at that. So, I
0: mean, you can tell that from the way he explains things in the interview, is that there's a lot of that kind of experience of explaining things clearly. And the other thing that's really great about Paul, I'm just adding this in that I've always liked, is that he's basically really open to different ideas, Mm-hmm. And he doesn't get into, um, you know, there are certain people who have positions, mm-hmm. and they want to maintain positions. And I think Paul is a real good example of what a, a, you know, kind of like the ideal intellectual is. You know, he if the evidence changes, he changes his opinion, mm-hmm. right? If the data is different, he adjusts. He doesn't continue to hold a position because that's his position. And I think that's very mm-hmm. admirable. And we know people who do not do that. Right. So, Yeah. But I always enjoy talking with Paul, and he's just a good guy. <laughs> he's fun. Mm. So, do you want to sum up every, anything or add anything else?
1: Mm. I don't. I don't think I can sum it anything up because you know, there were a lot of different directions, a lot of different topics, and a lot of density. Yes. So I, I don't want to attempt this is summing up. Go. If you if you're listening to us now, you listen to it. <laughs> you heard what I heard. So, okay.
0: Well, I think that's a good place to stop then
1: yeah okay
0: so Tony we could well thank you Charles and thank you Paul thank you very much Paul for giving your time um, and being patient with my questions (laughs) I appreciate it and so this is Charles Wiz and Tony Silva and we are two teachers talking at two teachers talking whatever okay all right so all right well try and stay cool try and stay dry that's right it's a humid hot Japanese summer Okay, be well, Tony. You too.